looking at a larger section of scripture this morning for the sermon, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, if you want to open there in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and Sam asked me to read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 8, and then chapter 9, so that's what we're going to be looking at right now. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected... But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Looking at chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now and come to this text, we ask that you speak to us through your word, that you give us the same grace that the Macedonians were given that overflowed with generosity for the love of others and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> I forgot to tell David this uh, right before prayer request, but I got word uh, from Daryl Rick uh, that Pastor Salem has uh, been in the hospital the last few days. Um, he's up at Avera with pneumonia, and he's been doing a little better uh, the last couple days, but I would just like to ask for all of you to pray for him. He's ministered to me in countless ways, uh, has shown me the love of Christ in so many ways, and he's shepherded many of you uh, for years and years. And uh, so let's remember, uh, Pastor, in our prayers, if the Lord puts it on your heart to uh, send him a note or go visit him. Just encourage you uh, to do that. Um, we're going to finish uh, our three-part uh, uh, series on giving, which has proved to be a joy uh, to my own heart, an encouragement, a challenge uh, for me, as God has even shown me kind of where my hope can be set and how often I can live uh, to store up treasures on earth rather than treasures uh, in heaven. And just a quick review of some of the points that we've talked about. We've talked about how there's an inseparable link between our hearts and money. It's the reason why Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell in the Gospels. Uh, when he's talking about money, he's talking about heaven and hell in one sense because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Uh, we've looked at how we're not owners but stewards. None of us own anything all the way down to our soul, uh, as Jesus told the parable of the man who uh, had a great harvest and said, I'm going to tear down my old barns, big build, big, build bigger ones, fill that up so he can eat, drink, and be merry. And he says, fool, tonight your soul will be required back from you. And 
He says, so is he who stores up treasures on earth and is not rich towards God. And so we're God's money managers. We're stewards that'll give an account uh, as to uh, what we thought of him as our master and Lord and what we believed about what was truly valuable. Uh, And then third, we looked at uh, how our fundamental motivation uh, to give or to serve is love for our master. He's worthy of our efforts to do well as good stewards. He's the Lord who bought us with the price of his own blood. And and fourth, we looked at how God rewards faithfulness, uh, not fruitfulness. It's not the end amount. How much money did you give at the end of your life? But it's, were you faithful with what I have given you? And so those amounts would differ uh, if you're talking about giving financially for everyone. is Were you faithful with your health? Were you faithful with your wealth? Were you faithful with the spiritual gifts God gave you to use for His glory? Um, And we talked about how every Christian will stand before God and give an account, not of our sins, but will be rewarded for that which in our life was uh, will last in the kingdom of God and uh, will receive rewards for however we invested uh, well. Um, and then last week we talked about how you can store up treasures in heaven by investing your money there. So Jesus said, don't store up for your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. The shocking thing is you can take your actual money that's in your bank account, your possessions, your time, whatever, and you can invest it in the gospel. What has God left for us to do? Make disciples, right? That's the Great Commission. How can your dollars go towards the gospel, reaching more people and more people being uh, brought brought up to be more mature, that's part of discipleship, becoming more like Christ. Generosity is great. Giving to all sorts of different causes is great. But are you using your resources in the best places that will have eternal uh, value that will last at the end of time? And we talked about how we will, if you invest in the kingdom of heaven, you will see people there because God has used your gift. And you have a friend forever. It is incredible to think that we can invest in ways that have eternal circumstances. Um, And this week, we're going to, just get real practical. <laughs> We're going to answer questions like, where should I give? How much should I give? What would it actually look like? And I think the best place to go, one of the best places is in 1 Corinthians. Here's what's going on. 
Jewish people, when it was time for Passover, would flood into Jerusalem with their lambs that they were going to sacrifice and, and with, uh, <clears throat> to celebrate the Passover feast. But on this particular Passover, the Passover when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was crucified, Jewish, some Jewish people understood the gospel and trusted in Christ. And all of a sudden, wherever they lived outside of Jerusalem, there wasn't a church back there. At least not yet. The gospel hadn't reached the, uh, that place. And what this produced was probably the poorest church in human history. Because in Jerusalem, you had bad, brand new Christians, Christians who have left their jobs, left wherever they lived because their life is now bound up in Christ and this is where their fellow believers are. And Paul is sent as a missionary to the Gentiles to uh, minister the gospel to them. But Paul knows about this poor church in Jerusalem that is really struggling. Now, if you know the history of the Jews' attitude towards the Gentiles and the Gentiles' attitudes uh, towards the Jews, this is like oil and water. They don't mix and that's why the text we're looking at is evidence of God's amazing power and grace uh, that is displayed. So as Paul's ministering the gospel, he's also collecting an offering that when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's going to give to the church there. He had already been to Corinth. We're in 2 Corinthians. He'd already been there a couple times. And evidently, the Corinthians' desire to want to give to that church, as Paul told of the needs, wanting to give themselves to the Lord and to that church, uh, the response surprised Paul. And as he went to Macedonia, he shared about what God was doing in the Corinthians' heart with these Gentiles. And that caused the Macedonians to want to give more. Well, now Paul's coming back and it's time to collect the offering. He's going to be sending Titus. And, and part of what he's saying is, come through on your desire to give. And so this is the context. And I struggled all week trying to figure out how to put together these notes. And what I did is I think there's 10 clear principles I think there's more. I listed 10 in your notes uh, that when you're thinking about, I want to honor God in my giving. I want to give like a Christian that's been supernaturally changed. I think if you ask these questions prayerfully, talk to your spouse about this, talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ about this. I think it would be worthy not to treat this just like any old sermon notes, but to keep this with you and pray and really ask God to show you what's 
in your heart and desire that the grace of God would be manifest in your giving. Grace-empowered giving is the, is the sermon. And my question is, is, does your giving manifest evidence of God's supernatural grace? Look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Here's, here's what it's like. If you would have known me, my mom and dad are here. They obviously knew me since I was a child. One of the things I love to do is tell, bring, bring exciting news, whatever it was. If we saw an ambulance on the way to Dairy Queen with someone with a broken leg, I couldn't wait to tell everyone about what I saw. Uh, the other, uh, a month ago or so, when Mel Chow's was on fire, I had several people say, have you seen Mel Chow's? It's on fire right now. It's crazy. I went and looked at it, and then I thought, man, I got to tell somebody about what I've seen. And this is what Paul's doing. Sometimes we read words like grace, and they're just like, oh, that's a spiritual Christian word. And we don't think. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Here's what he's saying. I saw something that's so incredible and it didn't come from themselves. It's supernatural. It came from God and I saw it and I'm relaying it to you. And here's what he saw. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. So let's just stop for a minute. Imagine a big, clear mixing bucket here. Like we're going to cook something. First ingredient, we have severe affliction. We pour it in. Then we have abundance of joy. Wow. These don't seem to go together. This is an odd recipe we're throwing together. And then let's add in there extreme poverty. Let's mix it up. And what's going to boil over the top out of this? For in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And Paul says, that's, that's grace I saw in Macedonia, which the world cannot explain. It's not explainable apart from supernatural grace. And the generosity is from Gentiles to Jews who were just their enemies, but now they trusted Christ. And this is overflowing out of it. It's shocking. And then he describes it. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. So what does it mean to give according to their means? Because he's amazed by it. He says they gave according to their means. Now, let me read a few verses to you with this word, same word. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. What if it said the forgiveness of sins from the riches of His grace? What's the difference between God giving according to the riches of His grace or from the riches of His grace? Let me read another one. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power in the Spirit. What kind of power is available to the Christian? Power that's according to the riches of His glory. So let's say a billionaire finds out that you fall, have fallen on hard times and you're having trouble making the rent payment. And so he writes a check for your rent payment. Now that's a billionaire, a generous billionaire giving out of his riches. But what would it look like if the billionaire gave according to his riches? What might he do? He might buy him a house. It might be an incredible house. And someone would say, wow, he gave according to the riches of his glory. So point one in your notes is, is your giving proportionate? Is it according to how God has blessed you? We're going to talk more about this. And, uh, and we actually can see, if you want to skip ahead down to verse 12, he says, for if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. And so as... We're going to ask the question at the end, how much should I give? One of my challenges is going to be, let God tell you if you're rich or not. We're not a good judge. We compare ourselves with our rich neighbors and we might not feel so rich. But if you compare yourself to the rest of the world in human history, all of us are filthy, rich, and are called to give according to the riches of His grace that He has given us. So, let's continue on. Their giving overflowed with the wealth of generosity, for they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means, which is where you get the second term, sacrificial. So there's kind of what was according to their means, but then 
They even gave beyond their means to where they really had to sacrifice. It hurt to give. You see, when you just give what's already there and what's easy and you don't have to uh, go without at all, it's nice, but it's not supernatural. It's not, you won't believe what I've seen God do in these people's lives. And then it says, and here's where it's like, come on, Paul, get real. Begging us, verse 4, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Arch enemies, Gentiles, newly saved. Hear about the church over there. Oh, Paul, you got to let me give. You got to let me. I'm begging you for the favor to give for the relief of the saints. It's supernatural, is it not? When was the last time you were begging to give an offering? I could care. That's probably too strong. I do care about what's given as sovereign grace. I don't care whether we have uh, an amazing building. What I do want to see is I want to see people's lives that the world looks at it and says, I don't understand that. How in the world? It's like that person's taken up their cross. They're not valuing what I value. I want to see the same grace given to us that he got to see. That's my prayer for us as a church as a pastor here. And so we see that the giving is voluntary. They wanted to give it. They wanted to do it. This isn't a law. This is something that came out of their hearts. It overflowed. (laughs) It was given with joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. You know, because I just, I'm a self-justifier. Any of you do that? What does Paul Tripp say? Everyone talks about listening to their inner child. He says, I don't know if that's a problem, but it's the inner lawyer inside us always justifying wherever we are. The temptation when you hear a giving sermon is to judge it according to, well, Surely I'm doing what's right right now. So the pastor sermon made it seem like maybe I need to change. Could that really be true? I mean, let's just be honest. This is how we are. We tend to usually think we're in the right, and yet why would we do that as we come before God's Word, still struggling with sin, still struggling with the old man? It's voluntary and it's thoughtful. Look at the word earnest. It means serious. So they were begging in a serious way. They were thinking about it. This wasn't a whim, emotional response, but it was something they really wanted to do. 
And look at what he says in verse 5. And this is not as we expected it. That's why he called it an act of grace. Right? He's saying, this surprised me. Here's the Apostle Paul. He knows the Holy Spirit's in believers, but he's surprised. That's not the response he expected. I'm guessing eh, in his human nature, he's thinking, oh, great. I am uh, I'm a missionary to the Gentiles, and I'm going to collect a gift for the Jews. This is not going to be the easiest job in the world. I'm guessing that if he's just thinking from human wisdom, this does not look like an easy ministry task. And so he's surprised by this wealth of generosity that's flowing out of them. And then he says, but they gave of themselves first to the Lord. So this is, if you jump ahead to number seven, this is God-centered giving then to us, then by the will of God to us. The attitude is this. It's all God's. Jesus bought me with a price. He's my master. I give myself to God. And then you tell me that my Jewish brother has a need. You better believe I'm going to go meet that need because he gave himself first to God. It wasn't his. It's God's. And then, verse 6, accordingly, now here's where this was so helpful for me this week. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Titus was ministering in such a way that he's a part of this generosity. And he's told that he should complete the act of grace. So Paul's sending Titus forward. Of their own free will, they want to give. And yet, what good is a gift that's desired to give that is never given? This created a good category for me. Because when we looked at the units of giving at Sovereign Grace, I wasn't believing the hearts of our people are unwilling as we weren't thrilled with what we saw. I wasn't convinced of that. And plus, I realized, you mean that Paul sends Titus to make sure that the gift is completed, that they wanted to give of their own accord, which means part of our giving is urged on by each other? to be faithful, to do what we want to do, to come through. This whole next section is about completing the desire of your heart to give. And this might be many of you. Maybe many of you have desired to give more. And there was no point where you said, no, I'm not going to do it. But you need to be urged on. You need to see the Word of God. You need to remember It's not yours. You need to remember that joy comes from giving. And so the last thing I want to do with these three sermons is get you to give a gift you don't want to give. 
God loves a cheerful giver. That's how our text ends. And yet, I'm urging you, reminding you who you are, whose money it is, that will stand before God, that there's rewards in heaven. There's treasure in heaven. I'm reminding you that if you store up your treasure here, every day closer you get to death, the more depressed you'll get. But if you store up your treasure in heaven, every day closer to death is a day closer to the kingdom of God where you get to see you invested well. And so he says, um, in verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Just because the desire is there doesn't mean it just automatically happens. There's effort. There's encouragement. There's sharpening each other. There's encouraging each other. Uh, you know, this is how Paul tells us we're, we're supposed to challenge each other to love better and to good works. And then he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So he's saying this isn't a command, and yet the way you prove your love's genuine is you actually come through. You actually give it. So there's a part of completing it that proves where our treasure is. Um, and then he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you might by his poverty become rich. Here's where you see gospel driven in, in verse 9. He reminds them that though Jesus was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich. And he says, when you think of this gift, Yes, giving is going to make you more poor, but it's going to make others rich. And you're the perfect people to live this sort of life since this is what your Lord has done for you. And so all of our giving ought to be driven and propelled. The gasoline that thrusts our giving car is the gospel. If it's guilt, that's not good. That's, that's not gospel-centered faithfulness. You're not seeing the worthiness of Christ. And then he says, um, verse 10, in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago not only started uh, to do this work, but also desired to do it, so now finish doing it as well, so that in your readiness in desiring, it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So that's where he's saying, I love your heart, now complete it. Now make it happen. And then he says, if, for, verse 12, for if the readiness is there, 
It is acceptable according to what a person uh, has, not according to what he does not have. You sit there and look at the person next to you and say, I can't give nearly as much as them. Or you're sitting there looking and saying, man, I'm, I gave five times as much. That's not how we think of it. It's according to what we have. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that in their abundance they may supply your need that there may be fairness. For as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Which presses in a little bit on our American idea of storing up wealth and security for ourselves. The idea is when you have abundance and you see needs all over, meet the needs. Well, I might give to the point where I have a need. Well, that's okay. Because then your brothers and sisters in Christ can meet your needs. And the idea uh, there is that we give according to uh, what we have. And then it says, uh, I think for the sake of time, we're just going to go to chapter 9 now. Um, He commends Titus Uh, to them, which shows that even when it comes to, when we ask the question, where do we give? It's interesting that whenever Paul's sending money back and forth or carrying an offering, it's under the authority of local believers and and local churches. It's not just a guy on his own saying, hey, give me money so I can go do my ministry. But rather, when Paul's sending Titus, he's commending him. He's He's sending uh, those with him where there's accountability. Well, look at verse um, 9. Or chapter 9, I mean. And in your notes where it says, humbly joy seeking, I I passed by this too fast. When, When they were begging for the favor to give to the Lord, Here's why you have that awkward statement, humbling, joy, joy sink, seeking. This is a person that realizes it's a privilege to give. So that's the humbling aspect. They know that God's worthy and this is favor in order to give. That's the humble part. Joy seeking, it's favor. <laughs> There's not a better thing we could do than serve the Lord. And... And so uh, if you're wondering uh, where that is in the text, and then is your giving loving as they heard of the relief of the saints, what did they do? They desired to give. There was love uh, for them. So chapter 9. Now it is superb. Man, this word is something else superfluous <laughs> for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints for i know your readiness he's like why do i need to tell you this i know you're ready but i'm but once again we need to be encouraged of which i boast about you to the people of macedonia saying that achaia has been ready since last year i've been telling them here's where your hearts are so 
they got on board and gave, and now some of them are with me, and what if they come back and you're not ready to give? But he kind of knows they're ready, but he's saying, get ready. So it proves that you're ready. Um, Verse 3, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians came with me and find that you are not ready, we'd be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead and to arrange in advance. Here's where you get the word planned in your notes. For the gift, you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. So it's a planned gift, decided. It, he doesn't want it to be a gift that's like, oh, are you guys actually going to come through with it? He believes their heart is ready. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Well, We should say, duh, to that. If you throw out a lot of seeds, you're going to get a lot of crop. If you throw out a few seeds, you're going to get a few crops. And here's where the health and wealth preachers, they love this text. You know, you sow seeds into my ministry and the money's going to flow back into your bank account. You won't believe what happened. That's what they will do with the text like this, but let's read it carefully. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You should give as you've decided in your heart. And it shouldn't be on a whim like, oh, right now I'm feeling really generous. Give me, honey, give me my checkbook. We got to write this. We're not going to do anything here that tries to stir your emotions to try to get you in a moment to write a big check. That wouldn't honor God. What honors God is when you take a list like this with the Word of God and you ask Him to reveal in your heart areas where you can honor Him with what He has given you. Areas you can be generous. It's not to be reluctant, but also it's not to be compulsive. It's planned. It's like monthly giving or weekly giving, however the Lord puts it on your heart. It's talked about, it's prayed about, it's planned. You can do it with a joyous heart. And then he says, in verse 8, or at the end of verse 7, for God loves a cheerful giver, because that's what brings him glory. God doesn't have a money problem, remember? Remember? The point of our giving is not so he's become poor and he needs it. It's our worship to him. It's our faith that we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so then he says, and God is able. And here's the key part. I want want you to see this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. He doesn't say, I'm going to put a ton of money in your bank account. In fact, if you give, there's going to be less money in your bank account because you just wrote a check. You're not going to go destitute, but there's no promise that the next time you invest in the stock market, it's going to explode because 
you gave to the church. But here's the promise. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Here's what he says. Give so that even at all times, in all circumstances, you're going to be overflowing with a wealth of generosity. God's able to give you the same grace that he saw in the Macedonians. It's not a promise that you're going to get nicer cars and a bigger house if you give, but the promise is is that your desire to give, he's going to make it possible that no matter your circumstances, whether they get worse or better, you will overflow with the same grace of God um, in your giving. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely and is given to the poor. His righteousness uh, or his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed for the sower and food uh, or in bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving. Here's the shocking thing. You give to them in Jerusalem and we'll worship God for this grace that we've seen in you. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they'll, be glorif they'll glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you. <laughs> so here's what happens. This gift is given. It's amazing. It causes Paul to have thanksgiving. It's going to cause the Jews to thank God <laughs> and have thanksgiving for God, how he met their needs. And then guess what they're going to do? They're going to love you and they're going to pray for you. It's the most beautiful picture. The gospel working inside believers, loving each other, ministering to each other. And so we ask the question, where to give? There's a million places you can give your money. And it's going to require prayer. It's going to require uh, considering why God has left you on this earth. What mission has He given us? In Matthew 16, 18, here's what Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not be, prevail against it. Here's one thing I can tell you as a fact. There's one organization on this earth that will never end. And it's not that impressive in the eyes of the world. It's filled with a group of sinners saved by grace. It's called the church. But the primary place any wise person would give would be to the organization 
that God has promised the gates of hell will not work against. Who's been given the gospel? The church. What authority does sovereign grace have? What authority do I have as the pastor? I'm out of here the day I quit preaching the gospel. I'm out of here the day I quit uh, preaching the scripture because the authority of the Bible is what this church is. And the Bible is God's word. It's Christ. Christ is the head of this church. There's many good parachurch ministries out there and the best ones put themselves under the authority of a local church. And so what I'll simply say running out of time is the primary source way we give to the Lord is to give to your local church. In Galatians 6.80 says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. If the word of God is preached from this pulpit to you, the primary place I believe that uh, you should give to the Lord would be the place where the elders are overseeing your souls, knowing they're going to give an account uh, to God. Um, one more text I'll share. 1 Corinthians 16, 1, talking about the same offering back in 1 Corinthians. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. You see the accountability? But here's what he says. Every Sunday when you come, put something aside. Give it. This is when they come together in the local church. Uh, that's where this offering, it's a church's not individuals sending the offering to Jerusalem. And one of the most beautiful ways you can give is through your church. And then the church give to missionaries and all over. Support mi missionaries? Yes. But I would say secondarily uh, to the local church. And then the second question, how much should I give We've already seen that it's according to what you have, not according to what you do not have. But here's my challenge to you. You go decide how rich you are. You look at the world. You look at the fact that this is the richest generation, the richest country that's ever lived on the face of the earth. And you decide in your hearts what it means to give according to your riches. And I am convinced uh, that in the New Testament, it doesn't command a tithe. Uh, but I also agree with Randy Elkhorn in this little book, The Treasure Principle, that the tithe is the giving training wheels. It's not the ceiling, it's the starting point. Let me read what he says. By the way, when you leave today, we have one of these for every family. Every family unit. Uh, we have one of these treasure principle books. It says, 
a logical place to the question, where should I start, is where God started his old covenant children. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain or soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Leviticus 27, 30. The meaning of the word tithe is 10%. 10% was given back to God. There will be free will offerings too, but the 10% was mandatory. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. The first thing you write at the beginning of the month ought to be to the Lord. God's children give him to him first, not last. When his children weren't giving as they should, he said, will man rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how do I rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you rob me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Jesus validated the mandatory tithe even on small things in Matthew 23, 23. But there's no mention of tithing after the Gospels. It's neither commanded nor rescinded. And there's a heated debate among Christians about whether tithing is still a starting place for giving. I have mixed feelings on this issue. I detest legalism. I certainly don't want to try to pour new wine in old wineskins imposing superseded first covenant restrictions on every Christian. Every New Testament example of giving goes far beyond the tithe. However, none of it falls short of it. There's a timeless truth behind the concept of giving uh, God our first fruits. Whether or not the tithe is still a minimal measure of those first fruits, I ask myself, does God expect His new covenant children to give less or more? Jesus raised the spiritual bar he never lowered it. And then he says, uh, maybe you believe exclusively in grace giving and disagree uh, with the church fathers Origen, Jerome, and Augustine who taught that the tithe was a minimum giving requirement for Christians. But it seems fair to ask, God, do you really expect less of me who has your Holy Spirit within and lives in the wealthiest society in human history, then you demanded the poorest Israelite. Nearly every study indicates that American Christians give on average 2 to 3% of their income. And then he says, the tithe is God's historical method to get us on the path of giving. In that sense, it can serve as a gateway to the joy of grace giving. It's unhealthy to view the tithe as, as a place to stop, but it can still be a good place to start. Even under the first covenant, it wasn't a stopping point. Don't forget the free will offerings. Tithing isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's just the starting blocks. Tithes can be the training wheels to launch us uh, into the mindset and skills and habits of giving. Some say, we will take this gradually. We will start with giving 5%. But that's like saying, I used to rob six convenience stores a year. This year, by His grace, I'm going to rob only three. The point is not to rob God less, 
The point is not to rob God at all. True, some would be sacrificing more by giving 5% of their income than others uh, would be by tithing or giving 50 to 90%. Certainly the affluent should never check off the box as if 10% automatically fulfills their obligation. The 90% belongs to God too. He doesn't just look at what we give. He looks at what we keep. Um, And then he says, when people tell me they can't afford the tithe, I ask them, if your income was reduced by 10%, would you die? They say no. And I say, then you just admitted that you can afford to tithe. You just don't want to. And so will this book challenge you? Yes, it'll challenge you. But I think what you'll love about this book is here's Randy Elkhorn, a guy who's had millions of dollars come into his bank account, who gives almost all of it away. He gives his testimony of the joy him and his wife have at investing in the kingdom of God. His wife right now has colon cancer, uh, doesn't know where where it's going to lead. Uh, but he said, we've been for years putting our treasure in heaven. And my wife, even though her life isn't guaranteed to her, has been investing in the kingdom of God and she's looking forward to Christ. And she's looking forward to the kingdom. And so my prayer is, is that you would, with a humble heart, Look at these scriptures, pray, ask God what it would mean to invest, to be faithful stewards of what God has given you. Father, uh, you talk about money all the time in the New Testament because you know it gets at the heart, our hearts, where our values are. Lord, I thank you that Even on this earth, we can invest in the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that you would give us the type of grace that when others would look at it, they would say that could never happen apart from the glory of God, that they would give thanksgiving to him and that you would get all the glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.